hey, I'm really glad you're here. Or there, wherever that may be. Thanks for joining us online or on site. This is uh, the second installment in our, our teaching series on prayer. We started um, one of my mentors a long time ago. At that point in time, I had no idea. I really had no idea. I mean, to me, in fact, let me think about this real quick. Yeah, at that point in my life, even my parents weren't as old as I am now. That's hard to believe. Ooh. I'm sorry, I'm having a midlife crisis right in front of you. <laughs> Ah, I'm over it now, I think. Uh, one of my mentors asked me, so Mark, what will your life sentence be? I go, what? I mean, I've done some thing, dumb things, but I don't think I deserve a life sentence. Uh, they went on to explain, every person's life, every person's life uh, will be summed up in, in a sentence or two. And how you live your life now will determine what will or how people will sum up your life. What will be said about you at the end of your life is determined by how you live now. So what will your life sentence be then? Determine now what it's going to be. It's true for all of us. For you, for me, and it was true for ancient Israel's King Ahab. Uh, his life sentence uh, is not one that I would, I, I don't, I'm going to be honest with you, I am not jealous. I am not envious. Ancient King Ahab, uh, Israel's ancient King uh, Ahab, uh, this is his life sentence. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30. Ahab did more evil than all who were before him. That was a summary of his life. That was his life sentence. When they look back at his life, Ahab did more evil than all who were before him. Woe. That was life as normal. Ahab was the king at the time Elijah showed up. We read about Elijah last week as we began this series on prayer. The uh, apostle John, uh, James, brother Jesus, wrote about Elijah as an example of a righteous person whose prayers were powerful and effective. He says Elijah was a human being just like us. So I promised you last week we'd go into his story. So here we go. Elijah shows up from nowhere uh, and says to King Ahab at the beginning of chapter uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, he shows up from nowhere and says, as certainly as the Lord God of Israel lives, there will be no dew or rain in the years ahead unless I give the command. 
And then he just disappears for three years, leaves the country. He's going to make sure nobody's bothering him. Now, at least me, and I'm pretty sure it left King Ahab and everybody else in Israel asking a few questions. Questions like, what gives someone the boldness? I mean, there are other words we could use there. But what gives somebody the boldness to say, it won't rain unless I say so? And then after a while of it not raining, I'm sure they began to ask, what is the source of their power and authority to back up that statement? And now it's been three years, so they're probably, somebody's got to be asking, Ahab has certainly got to be asking, I would think, What's the source of Elijah's power and authority to back up that statement that it's not going to rain unless he says something, given that there's been no rain for three years? What kind of person is this? Well, a whole lot of stuff happens in, in 1 Kings chapter 17, but we're going to jump to 1 Kings chapter 18 because that's where James went. And uh, there's a hint of trouble on the horizon. The Lord's message comes to Elijah and says, go make an appearance before Ahab so I can make, so I may send rain. Did you catch that phrase? Who's going to send rain? God's going to send rain. Did you hang on to that? So, answer to question number two. Question number two was what is the source of, of the power and authority to back up that statement that it's not going to rain unless I say so? God. God was the source of the power and authority that said it's not going to rain. And now all of a sudden, God has told Elijah, I'm ready to send rain. Go talk to Ahab. So Elijah went and called for a showdown on the top of Mount Carmel. And Elijah, uh, he gave, uh, so one of the things that Ahab did, he had brought in a couple of idols, uh, Baal, and Asherah, fertility god and goddess, and, and they were worshiping these two, and they had prophets, and they did all kinds of weird and just nasty things. And we're not going to go into all of that. Uh, and he gave them a chance to go first. Basically, they, you, you build an altar, and you put, your, you put one of these bowls on there, and you, and you pray, and you ask Baal, who was really a, a thunder god, you ask Baal to send down lightning and to light up the fire. And if that happens, we'll know Baal is really the God. But if that doesn't work, I'm going to build another altar. I'm going to, I'll build an altar and I'll put a sacrifice over here and I'll pray. And if God sends fire, then we'll know God is the real God. And all the people of Israel said, hey, that sounds fair. 
It was, I'm sorry, the Super Bowl of Gods. Okay. It wasn't even February. Um, so they had all day, they screamed and yelled and Elijah made fun of them. It was, for those of us who love sarcasm and irony, it was wonderful. Um, it was not so good for them. Uh, it, and it, nothing happened. And then it tells us Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. And he then drenched the altar and the sacrifice with water. Multiple times he had them pour out water, precious water. They, they, were, at the end, they were in a three plus year drought and he goes, you guys got water? Cool, pour it on that. Pour it on the sacrifice, pour it on the altar. He dug a trench around it. Make sure that trench is full. Just fill it full of water. I want to make sure nobody thinks I'm cheating. They're going, but, 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 but that's for us to drink. Pour it on there. And then the Elijah the prophet, the prophet Elijah prayed. What a big long prayer. What a fancy prayer. It went something like this. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are the true God and that you are winning them back. That you are winning back their allegiance. Fire fell from the Lord. It consumed the offering on the altar, the wood on the altar, the stones of the altar, the dirt and the water in the trench. In other words, where there had been an altar, there was just a crater. <laughs> when all the people saw this, they threw themselves down with their faces to the ground. Sounds like an appropriate response, by the way. And they said, the Lord is the true God. The Lord is the true God. And I'm pretty sure most of them were thinking in the back of their minds, and please don't send any more fire down here. We're scared. Don't, don't do anything. We don't want to be like that. Do not fry us. The Lord is the true God. So here's the problem. Revival has hit Israel. Everybody's turning back to God. And there's no rain. Elijah's looking around and the sky's still blue and there are no clouds. And he's thinking to himself, at least I would be if I was Elijah, uh, Lord, you said you're going to send rain. I don't see even a cloud. But then he told, tells Ahab, King Ahab, get up and help go home. It's time to celebrate. There's a storm coming. Now that's faith. God said there's rain coming. You better go start a party because there's rain. So Ahab 
listens to Elijah, I think he's also wanting to get off the top of that mountain because he doesn't want to be anywhere near where God's sending down fire. I mean, if your life sentence was he did more evil than anybody around, do you think you'd want to hang around where God's sending down fire? Not me. And Elijah climbs to the top of Mount Carmel. He bent down toward the ground, put his face between his knees. That's, that, is the, that is one of the deepest positions of prayer you can possibly get into. It was, at that time, one of the positions women would get into to give, have, give birth to babies. Elijah bent down and began to pray, and I did, as he did, he told his servant, go look out in the direction of the sea. Go look out over the Mediterranean. And his servant went out and looked. And he goes, there's nothing. No cloud, no nothing. Seven times, Elijah said, go look. Go look. Go look. Go look. And all the time he's praying, Lord, you said there's going to be rain. Lord, you said there's going to be rain. We need rain. The seventh time, the servant said, look, a small cloud the size of the palm of a man's hand. I mean, you barely see that, right? Coming up out of the sea. kind of person is this? This is a person who is so closely connected to Jesus, so deeply connected with Jesus that Jesus can tell him, this is what I'm about to do. And he believes him and he won't let up until God does it. Elijah was a human being with like us with a deep close relationship with God. James said the prayer of a righteous person has great effectiveness. Elijah was a human being just like us and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and there was no rain in the land for three years and six months. And then he prayed again and the sky gave rain and the land sprouted with a harvest. We can learn something from this. We can learn to pray like a prophet. To pray like a prophet, you have to find out what God's about to do. Find out what God plans to do and then get in line with what God plans to do. This is a change of this slight change in the way we often approach prayer. We often approach prayer as, hey, this is, it's time for me to go tell God what's going on in the world so that he can fix it. Oswald Chambers says something like, that's like beginner's prayer. What prayer really ought to be is where we go talk to God about he already knows so that he can give us his perspective. 
He already knows what's going on. So we come to him and say, hey, this is what I see, what's going on. Tell me what you think. Because I'm pretty sure Elijah had been praying for three and a half years. So Lord, it's not raining. And the Lord said, yeah, I know. People are getting pretty hungry. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> Some of them look pretty desperate. Yeah, I know. And then one day he said, go talk to Ahab. I'm ready to send rain. Okay. Elijah was ready to go. To pray like a prophet, first thing they have to do is find out what God plans to do and get in line with it. The next thing we have to do is then pray for what God plans to do and keep on praying until something happens. Seven times. Elijah could have just said, hey Lord, you promised rain. Thanks. I'm going to the party. Instead, Elijah said, you promised rain, send the rain, send the rain, send the rain, Lord, please send the rain, you promised us rain, send the rain, send the rain, and as he ran down the mountain, he was yelling, hallelujah, here it comes. I added that because I'm pretty sure that was in there. So the, the rest of the story was that the Holy Spirit came on him and he outran Ahab's chariot, chariot all the way back to the party. He beat the king's chariot to the party. That's pretty good. Pray like a prophet. You have to find out what God plans to do and align your, your, your will and your plans and your desires with it. You have to pray for what God plans to do and Keep on praying until something happens and then receive what God planned to do. Well, somebody's saying, are you sure, Mark? Is that really the way it works? Well, I'm glad you asked. I mean, that was just Elijah. There was one person. Let me give you a couple examples. Maybe you've heard of a guy named Daniel. Daniel was another prophet. He lived later. In Daniel chapter 9, it tells us that uh, he was reading uh, in the books written by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the prophet when Daniel was a very, very young person, probably even a boy. And Jeremiah was the prophet who told the people of Israel, the Babylonians are coming, they're going to take us away, take you away to captivity. It doesn't matter what you do, you can repent, but you've, you've, you've messed up so many times, it's going to happen no matter what. Lovely message. Um, but, Daniel's reading the book, 
Now that the number of years for the desolation of Jer Jerusalem was going to be 70. For 70 years, Jerusalem was going to be desolate. And he looks at, his, looks at himself and goes, I hit 70 plus. God said 70. And he says, so I turned my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and petition with fasting and sackcloth. And he began to say, hey, Lord, you said 70 years. It's time for us to go home. By the way, Jeremiah wrote those things in Jeremiah chapter 25. He said, the nations will be subject to the king of Babylon for 70 years. And when the 70 years are over, I will punish the king of Babylon. And it had happened. And Daniel said, okay, it's time for us to go home. It's time for my people to go home. And he started praying. Find out what God plans to do. And start praying for it. By the way, Elijah and Daniel weren't the only ones. I want to give you an idea of Jesus' pattern. Jesus' pattern of life. His whole life. He's pulling out statements that Jesus made about himself. John chapter 5. Jesus was in trouble. Jesus was always in trouble with the religious people. They didn't like something he had done. And he says to them in John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, I tell you the truth, the son, he's talking about himself, the son can do nothing on his own initiative, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. The father loves the son and shows him everything he does and will show him greater things than he so that you will be amazed. What's he saying? Jesus says, I'm in a close relationship with my heavenly father and the father shows me what he's doing and I'm just joining him. I'm just joining what he does. If you don't like what I'm doing, complain to God. Well, that sounds a little <laughs> harsh, Mark. Maybe Jesus didn't really mean that. Well, in John chapter 8, just three chapters later, verse 28, he says, I do nothing on my own initiative. Well, same thing he said before. I speak just what the Father tells me. And in John chapter 12, he says, The Father who sent me has commanded me what I should say. The things I say, I say just as the Father told me. So here's the sermon in a sentence. This is something to claim, something to shoot for something to grow into for us, but we can pray like Elijah, Daniel, and Jesus. 
we can become so close in our relationship with Jesus. This is what prayer is all about. We can become so close to Jesus in our prayer life, in our life of prayer. We can become so close to him that we know what he plans to do and we can ask him, begin to align ourselves with that and to begin to ask him to do it and we can receive In our practice, we tend to trot out prayer or pull out prayer promises and use them like formulas or contracts. Like, like so God made this, said this, and so if, if I do this, then God has to do this. Like somehow we can make God our debtors our debtor, and that he has to do stuff because we did things. Uh, but here's the inconvenient truth. We owe God everything and God owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. Nada, zip, zilch, zero, This is the whole concept of grace. God loves us because God loves us. God enjoys us because God enjoys us. He doesn't have to. He wants to. And if you just ask why, you're on the front, right? Because he wants to. You can't make him. None of us can. The thought that human beings, by some, somehow by their actions, can somehow manipulate God is, first of all, the height of self-deception. To think that somehow we could manipulate the creator of the universe in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that somehow we can make him do something. I'm trying to find how self-deception is, that's the nicest way to say it, but I'm going to be blunt because I tend to be blunt. It's nuts! Stupid, demented. It's the very essence of the ancient forms of magic and idolatry. Idolatry. That somehow we put these little actions together and we do these things and it somehow gives us control over the gods or God. We say the right words in the right way, and we mix the right things together, and somehow we can make God do what we want God to do. Nope. Not possible.
And that's why I think we need to be really careful about how we talk about prayer. And I might be getting in trouble, but I think it's really important for us to be careful about how we talk about prayer. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure most of us don't mean what we say. Because sometimes what we say sounds like we've turned prayer into an idol. You see, prayer is not powerful. God is powerful. God is all powerful. Prayer doesn't change things. God changes things. Prayer doesn't change us. God changes us. Prayer opens the door for us to connect it to God. And that connection with him somehow in some mysterious way because He has, God has chosen to do this this way because he's using prayer as a tool in our lives. Prayer opens the door for his will to work and for his power to be released and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So prayer is important, but prayer prayer's a tool. God's the powerful one. God's the change agent. God, God's the one we worship. Prayer has no power in and of itself. God alone has power. And somehow, somehow our trusting him mysteriously unlocks and unleashes his power on earth. It's the, prayer is the portal, the door, the, the entryway. It's the way we learn to practice and in experience God's love and channel, let that love flow into other people. It's the doorway for us to get into and experience the love that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit share with one another. It's prayers, the house. It's how we go into the house of God. It's in the house of God where miracles happen. Prayer is not some transaction we can, I do this, then God does this. It's not like we, it's not like going to the store. It's not like signing a contract. It's not like making a deal. It, prayer is a place where it, it, it's a relationship where we live. Jesus wants to lead us into a, a kind of intimacy with himself, with God, with the Holy Spirit that becomes hard for me to understand this. Ladies will understand this easier. But it becomes like the very labor and delivery room for the kingdom, birthplace of God's love in the world. 
I don't think it was an accident that Elijah dropped down into a position like the women dropped into for labor and delivery in his day. Paul talked about being and having birth pangs for one of the churches as he prayed for them. Labor pains for them. As he prayed for them to become what God wanted them to be. That intimate, deep connection with God is the place where prayer and justice and mercy and faith and love become mingled and turn into a flood that drenches our thirsty world. And that is what God wants for us. Jesus invites us to go deeper with him into his life of prayer, deeper than we've ever gone before. Biggest mistake we could ever think we've, we've made it in, 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 you know, in prayer is to think, I've got it, I figured it out. Nope. God encourages, Jesus encourages us to take steps toward making more room, more space for us to know him and to know him better and to become more like him. His, his primary goal is for us to, is for him to be able to connect with us and for us to develop a stronger relationship with him than we've ever known. The closer our connection with Jesus becomes, then the easier it is for us to know him and for him to share what he plans to do with us. And then, then he, we can align our plans with his plan and we can begin to see, oh, that's where you're going. I never thought about that before. I kind of like that. Or we need to talk about that. Because that really isn't what I was thinking. And at the right time, as we begin to align with that and pray with him for what he wants to do, then we're going to receive exactly what Jesus planned to do. So I want you to think about this question for a moment. Whether you're on online or on site here, with, I want you to think about this for a moment. What would be better? What could possibly be better than walking in this world as Jesus walked? Doing the things that Jesus does. Saying the things Jesus says. Talking to people that Jesus talks to. And loving your family the way he loves them. What could possibly be there moving into a time of into a level of, of prayer where our whole focus is simply connecting with Jesus that last 
hymn we sang talked about communing with him, friend with friend. Like first to sing a little song. We've sung it a few times before. It's a song that's becoming really kind of important for me. Sanctuary. I, I thought I, I thought it'd be a good thing for me to look it up this week to make sure I understood the word. Yeah, I grew up in church. Sanctuary was this room, and this, that's true. Uh, it, it's it's a room, a consecrated place where people meet uh, to worship and to be with God. Uh, it's also a place of refuge and protection for people and for for animals. An animal sanctuary. And I began to think about it. You know, this song says, "Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Prepare us to be a sanctuary." What 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 are we actually asking God? And we're asking that we would be we individually and collectively would be places of people consecrated to him so that people could meet God with us and that they would feel safe and protected with us As I thought about that, I thought, no wonder so many people wanted to be with Jesus. No wonder there were crowds of people following him around. If they knew, if they could felt, I'll be safe next to him. I'll feel God's presence next to him. I wonder there were crowds of people following the apostles around in the early church. Let's sing this prayer. Sing it. 